I suppose the astute amongst you will have noticed we haven't had a Bible reading. Our normal practice is to read a chunk of the Bible, 10 verses, as we work through different books of the Bible, and then whoever's up here explains it. That's because we recognize that its authority is derived from God himself, and we need to know what God thinks, not what the speaker happens to think. Today we're doing something slightly different, as we did last week and as we will do next week, is we're looking a bit of, at a bit of Christian history and to see what they rediscovered and how what they rediscovered actually changed the whole outlook of uh, the Western world. We're looking at the Protestant Reformation and this week how it affected the world. A couple of introductory points and then we'll look at about five ways in which our everyday life the things we often take for granted owe their origins to what they rediscovered at the Reformation. And those introductory points are really their theological rediscovery and their worldview that emerged from that. We saw last week that the Reformers rediscovered the biblical way of becoming right with God. God is said to be righteous in the Scriptures, whereas our default position as human beings is to be unrighteous. The medieval church thought that by doing various acts of penance and various good works that uh, an individual could clock up enough merit to gain enough righteousness to gain access into heaven. Well Martin Luther, who was a monk who agonized with this particular method, um, discovered that this was not in fact what the scriptures taught at all. And in fact, in trying to follow that um, medieval way, he'd actually got nowhere. He realized it was completely unattainable. He rejected the invention of the church of some intermediate state between earth that we leave imperfect and heaven where it's full of perfect people. Uh, that intermediate state called purgatory where that gap between how we leave this life and how you need to enter the next life was in fact tried to be closed, closed with a fiction of a thing called indulgences, which was an awful racket whereby the church could, for a fee, transfer, if, if this is possible, which it isn't, but um, if you imagine that the super saints who get to heaven straight away, they have a surplus of merit. And the church, whose saints they are, can transfer their merit to the rest of us who are in desperate need of it to sort of build up our bank of righteousness. They could do that, of course, for a fee. And that's how St. Peter's Basilica in Rome was financed to be built. It was a racket. If you uh, paid your money, you got a certificate of indulgence and it reduced your time off in purgatory or the time off of your loved ones who you may have paid for. But just think where a system like that leaves you. You have a remote God who is thought of primarily, almost exclusively as a judge, who has set an exacting standard which quite honestly nobody can reach because it's perfection. And, of course, you'll never know whether you've clocked up just about enough to get you into purgatory or not. You have no assurance, you have no security, 
you have no filial intimacy, no kind of parent-child relationship with this God, which was a whole area neglected by the medieval church, and one which you can already kind of remember that you hold most dearly. In fact, in the 1490s, there was uh, the personal physician to King Henry VII and Henry VIII called Thomas Lineker, who was also an Oxford professor. He decided he'd learn Greek. After reading the Gospels in Greek and comparing it to the Latin Vulgate, which was a 6th century translation of uh, the Greek, um, he wrote in his diary, either this, the original Greek, is not the Gospel, or we are not Christians. You see, the Latin translators of the 6th century had so mistranslated that the scriptures no longer managed to preserve the message of the gospel. And in fact, the church threatened to kill anybody who would translate, publish, or read the scriptures in any language other than Latin, although Latin is, of course, not the original language that the scriptures were written in. Now, Erasmus, in 1516, published the Greek text of the New Testament, and he set it in parallel with the Latin translation from the 6th century, so that you could make a comparison. And that helped Luther rediscover the truth about how we get right with God. It was a top-down approach. It's what God has done for us, not a bottom-up approach where we try to do certain things in order to impress him. God is gracious and out of his love for us solves the problem of our sin being a barrier to his justice. He himself, in the person of Jesus, God the Son, comes as a human being to represent us before God the Father and to substitute himself in our place for our sins. And in the words of Charles Wesley in his famous hymn, justice divine was satisfied, a full atonement for our sins is made, God for a guilty world has died. What Jesus would come to do, did do, and has done, has been recorded reliably in the scriptures. God the Father is able to offer the guilty acquittal because the punishment for their sins has been paid by himself in the person of God the Son, Jesus. And he's able to do so with complete integrity. He hasn't corrupted his own system of love and justice. He's been able to be both just in punishing sin and at the same time to express his love as the one who justifies us as sinners. As Luther put it, we have a righteousness that is both alien, in other words external, it's not our own, and it is passive, it is unearned. What has happened, he says, is the joyful exchange in which all that the believer has, her sin, she gives to Christ. And all that he has, his righteousness, blessedness, life and glory, he gives to her. He writes, seeing as scripture does, 
uh, Christ and the Christian's relationship as being analogous to that of a husband and a wife in some respects. He writes, Her sins cannot now destroy her, since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast as of her own, and which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell, and say, If I have sinned, yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned, and all his is mine, and all mine is his. And so for Luther, all the struggles and all the anxiety that he had been through to try and discover how he could be right with God are replaced with a massive confidence and a simple faith by discovering what I've just explained. And that provided a confident foundation for them to live in the world. It affected their whole worldview the Protestants rediscovered that they were here on earth for a purpose. They were not apathetic, complacent, indulgent, or even fatalistic. No, they got a grip on life. They had two ordinances, if you like, creation and salvation. The creation ordinance comes from uh, the beginning of the book of Genesis, where human, where man and woman are said to be here to manage and to multiply, Genesis 1:28. Fill the earth and subdue it. They were to be God's stewards on earth, to make the very best use of this fantastic gift of our universe and to use their talents to the full to do so. And then they had the salvation ordinance, because whilst there was plenty to get on in this life, the most important thing is gaining eternal life. And so they spread the gospel, the end of Matthew 28. Jesus said to the apostles, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I will be with you always. They had a very strong sense of purpose. They had a sense of vocation. Now vocation in the medieval period, as it is sometimes used today, is thought of as being a purely religious thing. It had been used then of the religious, that is the monks and the nuns, and of the secular clergy, both of whom focused on the liturgical. They left the world behind and retreated into monasteries and churches looking heavenward, churning out services rather mechanically and repetitively. But for Protestants, they had been placed in this world and with their place in heaven assured, they got on and lived. They had work in this world to do, for the glory of God and for the common good. I remember as a child uh, seeing a road sweeper, who I also noticed in church on Sundays. He was a manual road sweeper. Basically, he had a brush and he had a shovel and he had a bin on wheels. Now, it's not the town's most exciting job, and yet he was always cheerful. His nickname, not surprisingly, was Dusty, and he was working for the glory of God and for the common good. He was working as God intended. He had a purpose. And let's look at some of the areas, just five, which have been affected in the Western world by this new outlook. 
Then let's see how this affected their everyday lives. First of all, science. Sir Francis Bacon, who lived from the mid-1500s to the early 1600s, is considered among the fathers of empiricism and is credited with establishing the inductive method of experimental science via what's called today the scientific method. He was a Protestant. He wanted the advance of science by planning and direction, not, as he said, by blind and stupid methods, which he said were more like hunting by scent, sniffing it out, rather than by scientific method. He saw furthering the discovery of knowledge as all part of God's grand plan, and scientific investigation did not in any way conflict with divine activity. In fact, scientific method was positively virtuous. He saw science and scripture as God's two books through which God revealed himself, the book of God's word and the book of God's works. In terms of being able to know God, he points out the book of God's word, scripture, trumps the book of God's works, science. That's in the knowledge of God. If any man, he says, shall think by view an inquiry into the sensible and material things to attain to any light for the revealing of the nature and will of God, he shall dangerously abuse himself. Approaching and intruding into God's secrets and mysteries was, he said, the cause of the fall. But he distinguishes very clearly between these two sources of knowledge, science and scripture. He says, but let men beware that they do not unwisely mingle or confuse these learnings together. The medieval church had done just that, and it was a big mistake, big time, when they opposed Copernicus and Galileo, because they failed to distinguish between the Bible's use of the language of observation and the language of science. For example, in scripture it says, the sun rises and the sun sets. But we're not meant thereby to deduce from that 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 means the sun must be understood to go around the earth, rather than, as the astronomers argued, the earth goes round the sun. There's no conflict, they're just describing the same thing using different languages. The reformers saw science and scripture as complementary sources rather than conflicting ones. One is God revealing himself about his person, about his character, about ourselves and our relationship with him and how that can be put right. And the other is discovering about the world in which he has placed us. Bacon had learnt all this from the reformer John Calvin. And it liberated scientific discovery from the restraints of a church which at that time was both ignorant of scripture, which it should never have been, and of science. Sir Isaac Newton in the following century also observed the distinction between religion and science. The Bible, he says, tells us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Second area is economics and wealth creation. For every successful economy, you need three things, enterprise, honesty, and a restraint on personal consumption so that you can then save to invest. The Protestants became energized when they realized they are here 
to make the very best of their lives and of God's world, for whom they were God's stewards. So they went off on geographical exploration. They discovered new resources. They invested, as we've seen, into science and its understanding. And they applied what they understood to the resources they acquired, and they developed industries. And that is the basis of the whole Industrial Revolution. They were innovators. The Encyclopedia Britannica notes this, the intellectual ferment provoked by the Reformation resulted in a rigorous assertion of the vocational character of work, all work, and thus stimulated industrial and commercial activity and technological innovation. It is an indication of the nature of this encouragement that so many of the inventors and scientists of the period were Calvinists, Puritans, and dissenters. In other words, they were Protestant. For example, the researches of a number of scientists, especially those of Robert Boyle of England with atmospheric pressure, of Otto von Guericke in Germany with vacuums, and the French Huguenot, which means he's a Protestant, Denis Papin, with pressure vessels. Those discoveries help to equip practical technologists with the theoretical basis of steam power. Steam engines enabled coal mines to go deeper as they could pump out the water, which would otherwise flood the mines and make extraction impossible. Steam engines also revolutionised textile production. So they were innovators. They were not just here to sort of sit down and sunbathe. They were here to make the best use of their God-given talent in a God-given world. And they were honest, which is absolutely essential for trading. The late Sir Frederick Catherwood was at one time or other Director General of the National Economic Development Council, Managing Director of John Lang's The Builders and of British Aluminium. He was Chairman of the British Institute of Management and Overseas Trade Board, and latterly he was a Vice President of the European Parliament. He also was a Protestant. And in his book, A Better Way, he writes, In much of the world today, the largest single obstacle to economic progression is corruption. Too many businessmen in too many countries tend to assume that the 10% all along the line are just like a value-added tax under another name. But they're not. The tax is legal and certain, and graft is illegal and uncertain. Its main effect is to destroy trust and to make it extremely difficult to operate anything other than a family business where the family bond ensures trust, or foreign businesses where head office does not tolerate graft. He points out, if university professors can be bought, who can trust the value of the degree qualification? If technical, technical advisors can be bought, who can trust their advice? If purchasing officers can be bought, who will delegate the purchasing duties in the business? If foreign aid officials can be bought, who can be certain that the aid goes to the right people? If it does not, what's the point in giving aid? If judges can be bought, who wants to conclude a difficult contract? And if government can be bought, how can the whole clogging, cloying process ever be brought to an end? He concludes, 
It is the ability of men to trust each other which enables industry and commerce to be developed on the scale which makes an economic breakthrough possible. So innovation, honesty, and thirdly, they didn't consume all that they acquired. They restrained their personal consumption. They saved to invest further. So Fred suggests that if all these three features are taken up in developing countries which adopt the Christian faith, there's no reason why it should not lead to the same economic takeoff as it did in the countries which originally adopted this ethic. You see, they worked for the glory of God. They didn't work flat out seven days a week. They had their weekly rest to focus upon the Lord who gave their work meaning. The goal was simply not to accumulate wealth. They weren't the, like the la later laissez-faire capitalists of the 19th century whose motive was often simply greed. And then education. Realising that God had spoken, they wanted his word to be as accessible to as many people as possible. And so they translated it from the original languages into the languages of Western Europe of the day. So Luther, just three years after he hammered up his theses, his points of debate, published the German Bible in very down-to-earth German in 1522. Tyndale's English translation was published in 1526, a complete French Bible in, nine, in 1530, a Czech Bible in 1549, a Polish one in 1563, and a Spanish one in 1569. And of course, if it was available in your language, you wanted to learn to read so that you could have direct access to it and through it to God himself. You wanted to know what God was saying to you. And hence, people in positions of authority, like King Edward VI, the boy Protestant king who reigned after his father Henry VIII for just six years, he founded all these grammar schools which bear his name. And William Shakespeare, his education was received in Stratford-on-Avon in King Edward's VI school. Now the Renaissance had founded universities Oxford, Cambridge, St Andrews, places like that, but just a handful. And they were for a select few. The Reformation, while it greatly influenced our universities, it also moved outwards in terms of an education for all. The progress was slow. But interestingly, after the evangelical revival of the 18th century, when they started founding Sunday schools, which provided a certain amount of education so that the children could then understand the message of the Bible. By the end of the, uh, of the 1700s, a third of the children in England were in these Sunday schools. Some people in authority were very jittery about that. They thought if they can read, they're going to get ideas like the French Revolution and revolt. But better, wiser counsels prevailed. 
And a hundred years later, there was the Education Act in 1880, which made education compulsory for all those under the year age of 10. Fairfields, which is our local primary school, was founded in 1888. I remember walking around in procession in the town um, for its 100th anniversary back in, eight, in 1988. Yeah, I wasn't there when it was founded. But, um. Another area, politics. If you believe that all human beings are created equal in the sight of God, that we all have equal status, whether we're Christians or whether we're not, you will come to apply that to your Christian community. And the particular strand of Christians who did that most radically were the Congregationalists. All their adult members could vote for the different officers who ran their particular church community. Now, of course, if you've seen that work in your church, you'll want it in your country. And gradually, over the centuries, the House of Commons gained ascendancy over both the monarch and the House of Lords. And the electorate, those able to vote for members of Parliament, was expanded. It was a long process. In 1918, all men over the age of 21, and 40% of the women over 21 got the vote. The rest of the women in 1928. And its culmination, which only has personal reference to one or two of our members, namely myself, that uh, it culminated in the House of Commons Removal of Clergy Disqualification Act 2001, which means that even Church of England clergy can now be MPs. Previously, we were barred. In fact, even if we did become an MP, we have to resign being clergy even today. But we were excluded. We couldn't do that until, what, 16 years ago. And then liberty. Why do we still, albeit perhaps only just, have liberty of conscience, freedom of speech, toleration of other religious groups, even though they might be thought to be wrong? That stems from the Reformation. I'll read a quote from Luther in a minute, but contrast that with some of the voices that we have today, where we have minority groups whose beliefs and behaviour may have been considered... Um, really improper in the past, not only want us to extend toleration to them, but they want us to then promote their own views. That's a very different view. It's enforcing against people's consciences. This is Luther. In short, I will preach scripture, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force. For faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I oppose the indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word 
did everything. Luther knew you could never force anyone to love God. Love to be love has to be freely given. It may also surprise you that it was under Oliver Cromwell's parliamentary uh, Protestant protectorate in the 1650s that Jews were readmitted to England. They'd been previously expelled in 1290. And all Protestant denominations, and some pretty weird ones at that, even non-Trinitarian groups such as Unitarians were allowed to worship freely and to publish their literature so long as they didn't try and advance their views by force. In 1644, Cromwell had suggested that Parliament explore how far tender consciences who cannot in all things submit to the common rule which shall be established may be born with according to the word and as may stand with the public peace so that the proceedings of the assembly may not be so much retarded. In other words, he respected those who disagreed with him so long as they did not use force to impose their views on other people. And force isn't just force of arms. It can be an adverse application of the force of law. With the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, they did impose religious... um, conformity, and 2,000 clergy of the Church of England were expelled because their consciences would not allow them to follow the views of the established church. But the value of the liberty of conscience lived with the people, and after Charles died and William of Orange became king, who was a Protestant, the 1688 Act of Toleration came with the acceptance of religious and, to a large extent, political diversity. Well, the Reformation affected many other areas as well as um, the ones I've mentioned. It affected the whole of the life for a person who had come to faith through a Protestant understanding of how God is able to forgive us. And, of course, you know, the, uh, the Protestant um, expansion throughout the world didn't, wasn't able to remain, if you like, kind of pure. It did get distorted and corrupted. So, for example, with increased world trade, particularly the triangular trade between Western Europe, Western Africa, and the West Indies, and back again, you had the slave trade. But it was Protestants who put an end to that. People like Wilberforce. Similarly, with the Industrial Revolution and the speed at which it happened, and also the corrupting influences of greed meant people lived in pretty awful conditions. But it was the likes of people like Shaftesbury, who through his factory acts and mine acts, improved conditions significantly. And of course, it affected the arts, literature, painting, music, things I know as much about as I do about baking or repairing computers. So you'll have to do your own research in how they were affected. But I hope that you've realised that having access to Scripture, understanding its message, gave us a clear understanding of how we could be put right with God. And with that relationship secured, we were able to make the most 
of this world he's given us and of our lives which he has given us, not for our own benefit, but for the glory of God and for the common good in geographical exploration, in scientific discovery, in economic growth, in expansion in education, eventually universal suffrage, and liberty of conscience, speech, and assembly. We owe these guys a great deal. They did really affect everyday living, and they did so with the power of the word. The truth won out. Most importantly, we owe them the rediscovery of the joyful exchange, where we give Christ our sins, and he gives us his righteousness and we will live with him forever after we have finished serving him in this life. Amen.